You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Ward Shelley. Ward, thanks so much for being with me today. Hi. It's good to be back. It's been about six Ward, months since the last time we spoke. Yeah, we, we spoke six months ago, and um, so this is our second talk, kind of picking up on, on some of what we talked about you know, when the recording was off about, about relationships. But last year, of course, we were right in the middle of the pandemic, of course. Now we're talking on June 2021, which is, it seems to be on the outside of the pandemic, but we'll see. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so what's happened in the, in the past several months? Part of what we were talking about, the thread we're picking up here, is, um, is relationships during pandemic and relationships as, as, as an artist in the pandemic. Yeah. Well, you know, that's um, the, the year kind of put a, a, a sort of different spin on everything for everybody, I think. Um, and uh, now that many of us are vaccinated, we're starting to move back into the world as it was. But for me, the world as it was um, has gone through some changes that won't be undone uh, because I, I got old enough to uh, consider myself entering into a new part of my life that I, I wanted to um, take the opportunity. And I think I would have done this without the pandemic, but um, I wanted to sort of reevaluate my life at the age of 70, uh, now 71 actually, um, because uh, I didn't necessarily want to, keep doing everything just the way I've been doing it in terms of a career and um, what my life is like. Um, so I've, I've instigated a few things in my life that's caused some changes and, and I've even ventured to some of my friends who um, resist this, this idea that I'm sort of retired or in semi-retirement. Uh, maybe it's just a break for a little while. But, like, I have uh, friends that just think that they would never want to change any, that what they're doing is kind of perfect. You know, like I talked to um, uh, uh, John Guare, the playwright, and he and mentioned that I was sort of interested in um, writing another chapter in my life. I think that's how I, how we put it, like, uh, that would not necessarily be built around my artist practice. And he was um, kind of nonplussed that, that I would think that that was a, a positive change because he's so completely involved and loves his life in the theater and writing every day and, and the routines he's worked out. He just wants it to go on that way forever. And uh, I feel a little different about it. Um, I feel like that, um, that, that moving into New York um, and, and which I did, I did that like um about 1991 is when I actually moved to New York, and I did it um, part of a plan I had, you know, part of a career move. I moved to New York, you know, stopped being a big fish in a small pond. I was going to just see what kind of fish I would be in, in the biggest pond. And I, I went to graduate school at the same time. That was actually my, uh, my, uh, my the secret device that was going to uproot me from where I was in Miami to uh, – to, to New York is that I have this other 
occupation of the student thing, get me rolling and get me introduced. It worked out really well. And it was really great being in graduate school. I, I, I would say that in some ways graduate school is like having um, this, uh, the pandemic happen again because it just meant that everything in my life was different and that I, had, I could make choices based on what I want to do because there was nothing else that particularly that, that could be done because that things are on hold. Well, graduate school is kind of like saying I'm willfully putting the rest of those of that life thing I've got going on hold, and I'm going to concentrate on on learning, on on being a new me, on finding a new me. And I've I've done that a little bit this year in this sort of a uh, downtime. I had a show in September, and that was great and fun. But since then, I have done no real projects like you know the, I mean the professional notion is that when you finish one show you start thinking about what the next show is going to be and and that usually means that you uh, if you're if you're the kind of show that works I'm an artist that kind of works by assembling ideas to create a, cons- a cohesive statement and that, that ultimately becomes a show a body of work that expresses some overall um, idea, then you need to, you know, sort of have a, have, you start off in that direction, whether you know what it's going to be or not, you sort of set off in that direction pretty much right. as soon as the other show is over. Um, and if you haven't already kind of got it started in the, in your mind. Well, so, 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 right. So we're talking about this, this odd definition of a break. And, you know, I think as your friend said, and, and sometimes can be the reaction of the art world, um, you know, not not quite understanding what a break means, whether it's retirement, whether it's giving up, or something else. And, it, it, and and I think we can make Beatle references here, since we talked about this afterwards. But this is what happened also when when John Lennon um, took a break, right? He took um, of all the rockers, he took several years off. And and I remember, I think it was Mick Jagger was right. making fun of him for doing it. Um, you know, other 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 people were thinking that's that's the wrong move. That's not the right thing to do. Um, and it wasn't about retiring, but it, it, it was about what's what's important too. You know, what's 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 right, exactly. is, is the relationship primary? And you know, musicians are a tough act to follow in a relationship, but but also just what's important, which which I think the pandemic did highlight for for everybody. I mean, I I, I follow this analyst Esther Perel, and, and she talks about. Um, and it sped up relationships. It does speed up kind of what's important. What 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 do you want done, regardless of what of what age you are. But um, but this is also the, the the strange question of as an artist, can you take a break and is that valid? And can that be part of your practice? Can that be uh, not considered a retirement or a statement on 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 art itself or something? Yeah. Well, I think it it kind of has a little bit to do with whether you're taking a close look at what an artist is. Or you're taking a long look at what an artist does. Uh, you know, in, in New York City, the work ethic was super strong, and, and probably still is. Um, everybody, uh, you know, there was a lot of people vying for a, a limited amount of opportunities. There was studio space. It was really expensive. You, if you weren't in the studio working as much as possible, it would be hard to justify the whole the whole disruption to everything else in your life that being an artist in New York required. But it kind of meant that you, um, 
you had you had to focus to the detriment of anything else. If you considered yourself well-rounded individual, that was that's over because you had to be really focused in what you wanted to do, and uh, that would include um, you know hobbies and other interests. I used to like to go out to the theater. That stopped being part of my life, but it also um, affected your relationship for sure because. Um, when I get home from from what from teaching or whatever I would, was doing, I was a carpenter as a teacher. Then I'd go into my studio, and I had a wife who was like, "And this is not the same wife I have now." But uh, she was like, "Well, why are we in New York if you're just going to be in your studio all the time?" And that was, you know, that was the big, the big uh, truth that was right there. That was, you know, that was the hard truth that 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 made the the whole thing. Um, uh, well, I don't know. It was just—it was just essential to what was really going on for me. And I'm not sure that, that that would be the thing that I'd want to continue the rest of my life. And that's why, you know, I started talking about it decades ago. That I kind of felt like, well, why would I have to give up all these other things that uh, that are cool or interesting in order just to be an artist? But the fact is that maybe you had to. That's how it felt. You had to it had to do that. Um, and how does it feel now? Does it feel that way now, or now it's it's you're in a different position? Yeah, I feel well. It does feel totally different now. Well, one one thing is that I don't have a studio in New York City anymore. Um, and you know, I guess what motivates an artist and why they, what why they're doing. I think it, it's there, there's got to be some similarities amongst artists, but there's also going to be a strange and unique mix of motivations for everybody. And I would say that um, that some of the motivations that I had were things that actually could be sated, you know, that I could actually do it and it would actually address a motivation or a need so, so that I, you know, it's kind of like having dinner and I have a big dinner and that takes care of my hunger for a while. And uh, so... I had enough exposure and success so that I am able to sort of stop and and take a breather and think about what else I want to do. And you know, we're talking when you're at, at, when you cross into your seventies, it's not like you're looking at uh, the the second half of your life. You're looking at um, a much shorter period, and you can expect your physical self to be diminished over time during that time so that your ability to do things and maybe even your mental ability is going to be lim- more limited. So whatever it was that was important to you, you know, um, it's time to get onto that, I think. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the same thing. That's what I'm realizing. It doesn't really have to be the same thing that I've been doing up till now. You want to take a new look at it and it kind of feel like I wanted to go back to that period of my life, you know, when I was just a beginning adult, when I was asking, or college, my, my undergraduate years, when I was always asking myself these really big, simple questions, the kind of questions that people stop asking, I would say, after a while. And those, those questions are like, um, you know, what do I want out of my life? What am I doing? Who am I? Those kinds of Going, what's important in life, as you say? What is important? And um, 
so I, I've come up with some ideas. You know, I did, some of it has just been just sort of re-experiencing uh, stuff. Like I started finger-picking on a guitar. I decided that this year during the pandemic, I was going to have enough free time to finger-pick on a guitar. That was just going to be a thing I was going to do. Here it is a year later. I am not going to play recital for you because I didn't get that much better, but I had a lot of fun doing it. It meant a lot in the end. It meant a lot, and uh, I'm really glad that I did it. I also started gardening. I never thought I would garden. I never thought I would, uh, you know, that just never never crossed my mind that that would be, that would be the thing that I would do last. Anyway, it turned out that um, in, in this life that I'm sharing uh, with my wife, that um, some, something about our immediate surroundings and and uh, about it as kind of also a kind of a blank canvas, but a special kind because you know nature is a full participant in this kind of thing. It's not the same as uh, as whipping your paint and canvas into submission. It's kind of like a more of a cooperative uh, dance that you go out with your plants and see what, what, what they'll do and what you can do. And, and that was actually pretty interesting to do. And I remember that one of the last things that we talked about was the idea of listening. And, um, and it was most specifically in terms of listening uh, to my wife and being a better partner, uh, letting, let, um, not being so much the jump starter of everything, but also finding out what she liked, uh, what, what she felt like doing, and instead of always setting the agenda. And um, right. so, so the, there's other agendas that are out there worth listening to. Nature has some agendas. And, and um, I don't know, I had this, this idea that uh, an artist is this person who's like, if there is a definition of an artist, everyone's going to have their own. But, um, but if you move away from the popular kind of, vocational definition of an artist. It's, I think of it as somebody who um, has a, a lifelong quest um, for uh, maybe truth and beauty. You know, that's what, what are they going to be and, 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 and where will they be found and do I have anything to add to truth and beauty? And um, I, I, uh, I began to see that, um, I mean, but those things are, truth and beauty are not, in, in one way of looking at it, they're not, they don't exist out in the world independent from a witness. That uh, it's actually uh, the witnessing of things uh, and, and, it's, and it's in the uh, sort of the eye of the beholder to access that cliche, but also it's, it's, it's very profound, I think, that just, you know, that, that there, if, if there's no if there was no persons, there would be no beauty because beauty is a kind of a category of esteem that we bring to things, but not that, uh, that, that they would be beautiful without someone witnessing it. And maybe it's a little bit like does a tree make a sound if, if, in the woods when it falls if there's no one to hear it. I would say that there's nothing beautiful without... Uh, a beholder, and that right. part part of the artist's job is actually the witness. Or part of the job I decided is that part of my 
I'm let go of some of the um, control and manipulation of things and get more into the witnessing of things. And that's uh, been part of this year for me too. Does that make sense to you, or is it? It does. The witness, the witness does make scrambling. sense. The idea, the idea of the idea of stepping back and watching and listening and and you know hearing other people, as I hear you saying, and seeing other people like your like your wife and, and these other ideas, does make sense. A more a more of an observer role, right? I mean, as you're saying, just with a garden is an observer, but also you're a collaborator. Nature is a collaborator, but it sounds to me, yeah, this idea of a witness is is stepping into a role that's about observing more than um, more than doing, more than intervening. Yeah. And, of course, our lives become, for very practical reasons, definitely all about doing, uh, especially the modern life, about doing. And I think that um, the questions that animated uh, my quest and my life when I was younger – are are questions that you end up having to put aside in order just just to part, be a full participant in things, and it's a kind of a shame because you um, those questions are all about taking the long view and about um, um, being. And actually, you know what I would say that it's, it's about having a, enough perspective to activate your um, ability to choose because uh, after a while you don't feel like you're making choices anymore. You might, um, you know, you'll choose what you're going to have for lunch, and but you you don't choose whether you're going to be um, an artist today or not. You know, you don't choose whether your life is going to be about a quest for a beauty or it's going to be about... Um, about digging holes that you these the things are kind of determined even the i mean even i think that people probably would think especially artists that their lives are more about choice and and free will but we know that you know the kind of role of the artist especially those of us in new york is kind of predetermined a lot of it is really predetermined even though it's always about struggling against limitations struggling against the last definition of what an artist is it's always about setting up new, a new definition about what an artist does and what an artist has to do. And, um, you know, that's all great. Fine. That's, but, but, uh, but I, I kind of, um, I've kind of felt, uh, I mean, you know, this is actually starting to spin around towards a book, by the way. I don't know if, if you're ready to get into good. a book. We're, we're coming it's up starting to the spin book. around yeah. to a book. You, you, you can segue right into the book. If you're like, I was just okay. going to say, that this is also what striking me is this is also, you know, these are observations on, on, on life, on, on, on being an artist and evolving as an artist. And it's also, which makes it also a function of age, right? You're, you're, you're oh, in totally your in that, 70, 71st totally. year. This is looking back, but also looking forward, but also a kind of meta perspective on, you know, you are an artist. You can do what you want now. I mean, uh, it, well, not exactly, but I mean, of course you can, but you know it's also um, yeah a perspective. But, you know yeah. Well, you can you can do what you want if you remember that you can do what you want. But that's not. I mean, that especially like the modern American world is so much about um, 
finding your groove and getting into that groove and f- fulfilling those obligations that you don't really have a chance to step back and remember that it's optional. Uh, and maybe it's not that optional. Maybe it's not. Right. But th- theoretically, it's optional. You know, theoretically, we're free. <laughs> but, but practically, we're not. Um, but I, you, I, you have, that's, there's some benefits to being old because um, you, you, a lot of those miles are behind you now. And you, and, you, and you can judge them and yourself and, uh, I suppose, um, change directions. You can redefine yourself, um, or at least the possibility seems to be there that you can redefine yourself. I, I'll, I'll let you know when I turn 90, if I did it. But, okay, um, yeah, let's, let, let, let's talk again. I like that. Um, <laughs> so, so, but anyway, so this is book. Yes, the book. What are you reading? <laughs> the book. Well, so, um, you know, like uh, I've always been, um, uh, you could m- maybe even say I over-intellectualize things at times. I'm a thinking kind of guy. And I always wanted to be smarter than I am. And, uh, and I, I, I had a friend or two that were philosophers or that studied philosophy, and I was always really drawn to them and to the notion of philosophy because it was kind of like we may be talking about the keys to the secrets of the universe here. We may have some big important things to discover here. Well, it, you know, and I, I suppose that you know, I was, when I was drawn in, in the direction of Buddhism or Eastern religions, or in the in the direction of LSD, or in the direction of philosophy, it was always about finding some wisdom, some keys, some enlightenment that would uh, make everything um, open up, you know, and, that would, and, and, and I'm still attracted to that. So, like, um, when I saw this book, and I forget where I saw it because it was, um, I think it was in a, I was browsing in somebody's garage sale, and the name of the book was A Brief History of Thought. So it's just, like, in a way, that's almost like a cliche because we've had a, a whole bunch of brief histories in the last few decades, right? Things starting off with um, Stephen Hawking with his brief history of time, and then there's uh, Bill Bryson and his uh, a short history of nearly everything and things like that. So here's a brief brief history of thought, and under this subtitle is a, a philosophical guide to living, and that's like flypaper for me. Like oh. Maybe there's something here that I've missed and that I'm going to find out. Maybe someone's going to be able to explain this stuff to me. And uh, that's, I just want enlightenment to rain down on me, right? Anyway, so this book is written by a Frenchman who's actually um, a philosopher in the University of Paris. And it's, his name is Luc Ferry. It's like Ferry Cross the Mersey, F-E-R-R-Y. And um, so it says on the book jacket, uh, eight months on the bestseller list in France. And if you think about a book of philosophy um, being on the bestseller list, list anywhere, it's, it's kind of a curious thing. Um, but uh, I suppose if it was going to be anywhere, it would be France. That's anyway, right. so I, um, I, it, it cost me nothing to pick it up. And then it was just a matter of... Um, investing time in it. And I would definitely go, you know, I've actually had this book for more than a year, but I keep coming back to it. Um, 
maybe because of those keys that might be dangling in there, but also because he really lays out um, he what this book does, and it's a short book. I mean, not short, but it's like you know, it's like 300 pages, and it's lightweight, and it's um, and it's basically he he's he approaches all these these ideas, this whole history of philosophy in that much time. Well, that seems impossible, and it's because he is first of all dealing in very broad strokes. He jettisons all the jargon. Um, and uses uh, and, and he's only getting to um, not so much the um, academic side of it, but the um, the side that the the the, the 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 stuff that would make sense to a common person's experience, you know, which philosophy courses that was always the kind of disappointing thing is that you go into a philosophy book or a philosophy course to find out. Um, you know what? Uh, you know what? What's what this person's philosophy is, and you find out it seems to be all about criticizing the last philosophy that was there, and not so much about about living something else. Anyway, right. so he starts off this book in a very disarming way because he says all these philosophies all over time have really been faced with three questions, and they have strived to answer these three questions. And what are the three questions? As I recall. They are, uh, what is the world, you know, the substance and nature of the world? And I, I think that probably most philosophy that we think of now doesn't really, that we sort of toss that question over to science. But the earlier philosophies would talk about the music of the spheres and, and the, the nature of, of whether the world is made out of, of particles or fire and water and stuff like that. So that was what that was about. What is the, what is the world? And then... What is the right way to live in this world? That seems to be what philosophy was about. And then the third question, and this is the one that sort of like kept me connected to this book. What is our salvation? So the, the questions are like, what is, this, what is the nature of the world? What is the right way to live in it? And what is our salvation? And that salvation question um, was the one that he didn't spend an awful lot of time trying to figure, and I tried to figure out why is that lifted up to like the same level, and what does that mean? And I guess it really has to mean with um, is that is that is that since the the, the rest of the answers are not going to solve the basic underlying problem of what it is to be alive, but but we shouldn't forget that there is there are some problems involved like in being alive, like like the fact that you're. It's only temporary. That's a big problem. Anyway, he he uh, takes this, in this yeah. book. In this book, he uh, he deals with like just large sections of philosophy. He might not like. I don't think he spends much time with Aristotle or Plato, um, a bit. But he handles the Greeks in a in a big bundle. And and what bubbles up from the Greeks that was pretty interesting was Stoicism. And it turns out that Stoicism is a uh, um, actually experiencing a resurgence in, um, in America on a popular, almost self-help book style of looking at the world. Um, yeah, which I, it is. I had, it is. Yeah. And I had, I, you know, I was sort of surprised because when he described it, it was great. It was, it, it, I thought, I thought, well, and this is the problem with me reading philosophy 
is if I'm understanding stuff, it always seems right to me. And I'm all right. Oh, God, yes, I agree with that. This is what's going on. This is the way where things are. And then you find out later that there are these, you know, that you can't have it all, that there that, 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 um, there's these criticisms, and again, you hear the criticisms go, oh, yeah, that's right, too. Bummer. Well, gosh. You know, like and with, right. with, um, with, with, with Stoicism, I mean, you know, the popular idea of a Stoic or of, of Stoic just as a person is somebody who, like, can endure hardship. He doesn't complain. He got a stiff upper lip. Uh, he's a right. stand-up guy, you know, whatever. But the, the Greek definition of a Stoic is somebody who um, knows the true nature of things and can adjust to the true nature of things, you know, and has and is, you might say, well-adjusted to the true nature of things. And the true nature of things, um, of course, they'll spend a lot of time on that, but um, it does, it, re- it reminds me of um, a little bit of Buddhism. In fact, in fact he, he, he says that it's got a lot in common with Buddhism, but it also reminds me of that, uh, that, that um, you know what the serenity prayer is? Uh, sure. The one that says, God grant me the serenity yeah. Yeah, to accept. And, and uh, then there's the middle line, in the, but the last bit is, and the, and the uh, wisdom to know the difference. So, so that seems like the, the, the kernel idea, the, the kernel at the center of Stoicism is that you have to learn the difference between the things that you can affect and the things that just are that, that you can't affect. And the, the ones that you can't affect is you have to have a, a relationship with that kind of stuff that... Um, is sensible and not just in resistant or, you know, and that, that seemed like, so I thought, oh, well, well that's, a, that's all pretty good. Let me can march through the book. And he, but he always lets you know that he's going to burst that balloon in a little while. So I was waiting for the burst for the stoicism. And meanwhile, went off and bought a couple of more popular books on stoicism so I could really get into it. And what a fool, <laughs> what a fool I was. But uh, I know I still have strong affection for that stoic notion. But he end up, ends up saying that um, the philosophers of the 20th century um, start bringing up things like um, if you're if you're all about accepting the the way that things are, does that mean that we have to accept Auschwitz? You know, that, this is Adorno, Theodore Adorno, who you may no, and uh, right. does this mean that? And, and and if we accept, I mean, if we're accepting things that that are um, that negative and that let's just call them evil, um, does that make us complicit? You know, in other words, can you can you come up with a, a philosophy that is so much about having a an accepting relationship to what is without Actually, promoting and and uh, almost um, endorsing evil, which um, I couldn't come up with a a good rejoinder for that. So, so I started reading further in the book, and um, as I said, oh, this is it takes me a long time. This book, you know. Anyway, it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's been a pretty interesting ride. We're up to Heidegger now. Who uh, Heidegger? He's um, suggesting that there's a difference between the means and the ends and that 
the, the problem with the world. And this goes pretty much to what I was saying earlier when we were talking about what's the thing about the artist is that you lose sight of the larger goal because you get so wrapped up in the, uh, the day-to-day, the means to the end, that the end stops to become a question. He says that we're, as a society, no longer thinking about we don't feel like we have a choice as to where we want to go, what we're going to do. We just, and he's talking about um, global society, you know, like it's, that we don't, we, for instance, we can't address global warming because, um, because we're too, too much competing with each other. Hmm. But, um, interesting. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad we talked about that book. That sounds fascinating. And, uh, I would like to read it. It is unusual to hear a book on the bestseller list for so long, but you're right. If, if that can happen, it would happen in France. I mean, Sapiens, that happened with two of these kind of histories that that are yeah. just written in a, in a fresh way, too. Um, you like that book, Sapiens? Yeah, I loved it. Loved it. I thought, I mean, you know, I thought and that guy, that guy is, is, you know, I mean, like, like a lot of people, they, a lot of people feel like that book's been written before, a history of the world, you know, but just from a different angle, so it's that much more exciting. And, and this, this sounds like, uh, you know, something similar, just very, just very well written. Somehow hits the, hits the kind of tempo of the time or whatever it is. And, uh, yeah, bestseller list, philosophy. So I love hearing that. That's cool. Yeah. Um, Ward, thanks so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your, your time and, and talking about these ideas. You're quite welcome. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.